0: This program is brought to you by P1 Australia Racing Components, the designer of the oil heat mats for dry sump tank applications. Find out more about the truths on engine oil heating at p1australia.com. You love supercars and keeping up to speed sometimes means hitting the rev limiter? Welcome to the Gates Rev Limiter Podcast. After each round, we unpack what happened. Join Andrew Clark. Paused the fraction and got it right, and they probably still would have won the race. I mean, and that, yours truly, Neville Wilkinson. Is it the heady days when Ford was spending mega bucks for all the action, all the controversy, and sometimes a little emotion? The Gates Rev Limited Supercars Podcast. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or where you listen to them.
1: Thunder Media.
0: Hi, I'm Chas Mostert. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Today on Inside Supercars, we hear from man who's probably published more books than anyone else in this country on the topic of motor racing. There is
1: information about all sorts of things, from important to trivial, and That's what made them such a good read, you know. People read the book afterwards and went, I didn't know that, that's, you know. I mean, all sorts of silly, crazy things. But of course, there's also, you know, there's also numerous times and numerous instances during the course of all those years where we knew things that we couldn't publish. Ray
0: Burghouse joins us on Inside Supercars and it starts now. As our look at books in motorsport continues, we're joined this week by, well, maybe he's the godfather of the motorsport book industry in Australia. Ray Burkhouse, it's great to have you back on the show. And can we talk about your publishing career? But more importantly, let's talk about one facet of it, the Great Race Book. At what stage did you start publishing the Great Race Book? How many, how many years and and how many things had come into putting that idea together?
1: Well, it's an interesting exercise because way back then, uh, if you'd remember in the early days of the Bathurst race here, uh, James Hardy Industries, Hardy Ferodo originally, which was one of their brands, uh, brake pads, then James Hardy Industries, as a group, were the sponsor of the race. And when we got to, and I always counted the race as starting in 1960 at Phillip Island, because it really did. I mean, that was the first 500-mile race. In 1962, it moved to Bathurst, because the, in 1961, they'd torn the hell out of the racetrack. 61, 62? Anyway, it, it, 60, 61, yeah, 62. So uh, Philip Island basically said, go away. Uh, our tra- track has been destroyed by you guys. Uh, moved to Bathurst. Bathurst then in 1962 held a six-hour race up here for... Uh, combined field of cars, sports cars, all sorts of things. And that would have been the Easter long weekend? Correct. No, no, actually, no, it wasn't. It was the October weekend. Oh, okay. uh, because in those days, the Easter weekend was bicycles- motorcycles on Friday, Saturday, and cars on Sunday, Monday. Okay? Anyway, cut a long story short, uh, with James Hardy being the sponsor of the race, it just so happened that we, we were coming up to the, uh, the 20th anniversary of the race. So 19, six, 1979 was the 20th race. And 1980, it was the 21st race, what I did was I approached James Hardy Industries to say, what about we do an anniversary book on the race that you now sponsor? They thought that was a great idea. And they also happened to own a company called Landsvale Press, which were a book publisher. And so I did a deal with the book publisher. I got my good old mate and ex-partner, Bill Tuckey, to write the book, which was the first 20 years okay and we included 1980 and it published in 1981 so what we used to do because in those days printing in Australia was far too expensive we used to print it offshore in either Singapore or Hong Kong but that took months and months so we would do the book immediately after the race but it wouldn't publish till approximately August of the next year because in August of the next year, that was when it, it, uh, enthusiasm for the next race was coming up. So we put it out in that time frame. Well, the first book published in 1981, uh, pre the 1981, uh, sorry, yeah, 1982, I'll get it right in a moment, it's a long time ago. Um, and we put out, I think from memory, 20,000 copies And then a month later, they printed another 10,000 copies. And a month later, they printed another 10,000 copies. And the managing director of Flansvale Press was looking at me as if I was his golden child. And so uh, I said, well, that's, you know, I expected nothing less. (laughs) So uh, the next meeting we had was, I think we should do an annual on the race, because we can't wait for another nine years to produce another history book. So in, 1980, in the 1981 race, which was won by Dick, as we all know, uh, uh, we won't discuss the, the ways and means why he run the race, um, and so we produced a book post-1981's race, which published in 1982, and that started the cycle. And then subsequent to that being done and subsequent to my company's growing during that time frame, we eventually took the book away from Lansvale and pr- published it ourselves. And we eventually did 30, I think 31 editions, I so say 31 years. And in that same time frame, we published the 20 year history, which started it, the 30 year history, the 40 year history, and the 50 year history. So there's been a number of you know, history books written. Admittedly, a lot of the original stuff is basically the same. You, know, you you just roll it over because you've, you've said the story, you've checked all the facts, you know it's correct, and then you just republish it because you're publishing it to an audience who didn't see the first books. They were long gone before they were even born. Right? So you're looking at a fairly l- lengthy time frame uh, with Bathurst books. Unfortunately, you know, with the advent of the internet and, you know, all of the things of modern technology, uh, it became less and less profitable, uh, no less uh, enthusiastically uh, met by the audience. They all thought that the thing was fantastic right to the last minute. But it just got to the point where it was less uh, financially viable, uh, which is just simple numbers. And you know, uh, you know, publishers like myself and everybody else, we're in the business to make money. We're not in the business to be philanthropists. So Chevron was post the, the start of the Bathurst era books? Yes, it was. Uh, Chevron, well, the, the original group that we got together was um, uh, Bill Tucky, Tom Floyd and myself. And Bill was the, the writer, Tom was the production manager and I was the marketing guy. Okay, And we worked extremely well together for many years on a quite a wide range of subjects. We did, we did eight editions of a, a book called Motoring Year, which was about the motoring industry. We did Off-Road Year. We even did Sailing Year. And... These were very successful again in the late 80s and 90s, but time has moved on, and most all of those things have long since, you know, uh, died a a sad but quiet death. Uh, So, uh, I guess over the years, with all, you know, we've done two editions of uh, the Australian Grand Prix history book, we've done four editions of the Australian Touring Car Championship history, from 20 years to 30 years to 40 years to 50 years. Uh, So, all told, I suppose in the various incarnations that I've worked under as far as company titles are concerned. We've probably published about 110 to 120 books over those years, which is which is a reasonable number.
0: One thing that always interests me is the name of your Bathurst book. It wasn't the Bathurst 1000 or the Bathurst 500 or the Bathurst 2022. It was the Great Race. You... Are you the man that coined
1: the great race or are you the guy that monetised it? Well, uh, I'll be honest with you. The first book we published was called, the title was Australia's Greatest Motor Race. That was the first 20-year history. The first annual was called James Hardy 1000, 1981-1982, which meant the 81 race published in 82. That kept going until Hardy's pulled out in after the 19... 19- 87 race which was the world championship race after that they decided they'd had enough the ARDC then got twoies on board and I said to myself I'm not going to call a book the twoies 1000 right and so harking back to the original title of Australia's greatest motor race I just said to our guys the great race we, 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 know, it's kind of a generic name that we've been calling it all along so let's title the book The Great Race which we did and the, the next edition came out which was the 1988 race and that was the first edition called The Great Race and my good old buddy from Channel 7 Mike Raymond got his first copy of that book and said what a ripper idea and he immediately stole it <laughs> The
0: Daytona 500 is the great American race, as they like to coin it. The Annapolis Motor Speedway is the greatest spectacle in racing. It makes sense that the Bathurst 1000 is the great
1: race. Well, it, it did make sense at the time. It certainly sold on an awful lot of books, you know, and uh, you know, we still own the copyright on the name because we're still publishing a magazine under that title. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things that's been around for a long time. And of course, you know, it would have been wonderful if I'd been A, smart enough and B, able to copyright the name. I can copyright it in a publishing sense, but I can't copyright it in terms of people's usage of it. Otherwise, I would, I would have been very rich by now. Can you imagine if you could charge everybody a dollar every time they use the name? I can actually,
0: and it's a lot of money. But... That also has a self-fulfilling part of it too. You've used the name The Great Race. You've got to book The Great Race. And Mike Raymond
1: keeps calling it The Great Race. As soon as you walk into the shop... It jumps off the shelf at you. Exactly, and I mean, it was a symbiotic relationship. You know, I mean, we—I I never, never bitched too much to Mike. You know, even though we, we, you know, we, we, had this kind of a slightly frictious, fractious relationship about the name, because I knew he stole it. He knew he stole it. <laughs> but you know, it's one of those things where you—you you don't have claim over it. You can't actually say, "I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Raymond. You can't use that." You know, it becomes. Uh, part of the, what is called the public domain.
0: You have had an interesting career, to say the least, but what turned you into working in the publishing area from having a love of photography and being involved in the photography side of the media? What was the next step
1: that got you into the publishing side? Accidents most things in life are accidents uh you either you, you an opportunity arises it's presented to you it can it can be present for days weeks months or only minutes as it turned out uh after the 1968 london city marathon that, that I, I was driving a photographic team on um i discovered on that just purely coincidentally that i had a, a reasonably good eye for photography because i was bored out of my tree once i got. The photographers to where they needed to be we could be standing there for six or eight hours filling the whole crew, uh, uh, field through so I started taking pictures and it turned out that, that I was quite good at it. Um, I thought I could make money out of this so I decided to become a motoristic photographer as a part-time gig. Um, that became a full-time gig relatively quickly and because I was reasonably uh, in tune with the commercial side of motor racing, I knew that you could make money out of it not by producing ten by eights to sell to the punters for two dollars each, but by selling photographs to the sponsors, who used them in those days in newspaper advertising, and so uh, we would contract to, you know, Ford, Holden, Chrysler, Dut- uh, in those days Datsun became Nissan, Toyota, Dunlop, Goodyear, you know. <laughs> Castrol, Valvoline, Shell, Mobile, BP, we had a whole range of clients and that put me into a position where I knew an awful lot of people in that side of the business and Tom Floyd came to me who at that stage of the game in 1971 was uh, running Australian Motoring News pretty much on his own and uh, he offered me the opportunity to join him in a a marketing role which I, I accepted and I got into publishing in that way. Uh, I'd known a lot about publishing because I was also providing material to publishers like KG Murray, who did Wheels and Sports Car World in those days, and Modern Magazines, with Modern Motor, and so on. So I had all of those contacts, and it was relatively easy to just stretch out and say, hey, fellas, I'm over here now. And it was quite funny. In the days when we were doing Motoring News, I would go to events, I would take pictures, I would sell those pictures to say, Castrol and Holden, right? And Castrol and Holden would then produce a full page ad for the newspapers, right? And that ad would appear on the Thursday after the race meeting in the national press. But I knew that they were doing that, so I would sell them the photograph to make the advertisement from, to say, we won. And then I would sell the agency to put that same advertisement in our magazine. So I was, I, I was double-dipping, okay, and that went on for quite a long time. Uh, I do remember once that uh, the uh, – I think the, 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 this will never happen again up here – but do you remember the year that Gossie and KB won up here at Bathurst? Well, I had a contract with both Dunlop and Goodyear. Now, on that day, the race started in the dry – and Gossie was contracted to Dunlop and he was running on Dunlops. And then halfway through the day, it rained and Dunlop didn't have any rain tyres. So Gossie had to buy a set of Goodyear rain tyres from Frank Maddich, who was the Goodyear dealer for Australia. So I provided the pictures to my clients, Dunlop and Goodyear. And on the Thursday after the race in Every newspaper in Australia, there was a full-page ad for Dunlop saying, we won Bathurst, and there was a full-page ad for Goodyear saying, we won Bathurst, and coincidentally, they chose the same photograph. (laughs) And, of course, they were both right. (laughs) So, I mean, that's never going to happen again, ever, you know. You had an eye for photography.
0: What does that eye do when you're publishing a book that is so dependent on the photos to encapsulate what the words
1: are trying to tell people. Really, you've got to be able to think what it, will it look like on the page. And you've also got to think the art director has got to create every double page spread of every book has got to look similar, but different. And so you, you take various shots, you know, around Bathurst for argument's sake, there's, oh, there's probably 30 or 40 you would call standard shots over Skyline, going into Hell Corner, Murray's Corner, but if you're going to, in a book that like we used to do with The Great Race, 256 pages. So approximately 220 of those pages were going to have pictures on them. So you don't want to use the same angle of photograph 50 times. So you've got to have all these different angles so that each spread has a different look to it, even though it's similar. It's kind of a comfort zone thing. And so you, you have to have... Fifty or sixty or even more different angles that the art director can choose from. So he has, you know, Peter Brock on on this page, going left to right, and then thirty pages later he's got Peter Brock going right to left, right? So you you mix up the you you, you mix up the pudding as it were, so that each spread of the of the book looks different but has the same sort of comfort feel to it.
0: If we talk about, let's go with the Brock Moffat era you've got uh, Perkins in there at the end and and Goss and all those guys but we had a field of 55 cars did you have a commitment or did you have it in mind that you wanted to have at least one photo of every car or did you have to look at what the narrative was to determine what the photos were or did you tell the riders what the narrative had to be to fit around the photos
1: no the the narrative was the narrative uh, all the way through from when Bill started and then and then uh, Steve Normoyle took over and so on. Uh, so that was fit, set in stone. You know, the story is the story, OK? But, yes, it was our principle that everybody who's, who signed on for the race week, even, and there were quite a few instances, where guys turned up on Wednesday and didn't even make the race. There was one famous incident where two guys turned up with a white Commodore and one engine and two sets of tyres and absolutely no idea what they were doing and they were gone that afternoon right? they, they did one practice session you know, lunched the engine put it back on the trailer and went home but there is a picture in that book of that car because they at least started the event they didn't start the race they started the event and so we would make sure that in every book there was at least one shot of every car
0: to the narrative now and on 264 pages, I think i got that number right. Almost. Yeah, <laughs> close enough. How much of the book has to be about 1,000 kilometres or 500 miles and how much
1: of the book is about the preamble? We used to do a um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Monday, Tuesday chapter. Well, actually, if you go back even before that, small opening chapter, championship up to that point was a chapter. Then Monday, Tuesday was a chapter because in those the early days, practice started on Wednesday. It was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So you had four days of practice, and each day was a chapter. So it, we you tried to um, you tried to include everything that happened during practice and qualifying. One of the things that we used to say to ourselves was that um, our journalists would every year. Uh, the rule was. Each journalist would be allocated a certain number of teams. Go to the team, introduce yourself to the team manager, tell them that you're writing for the official book on the race, which it was, and... Official by your decree or official by the ARDC's decree? Official by the ARDC's decree as well as by the Confederation of Australian Motorsport. So I was absolutely certain that if I was going to be official, it was going to be official, right? There's an official with a capital O, an official with a small O. You know, you know which one you want, okay? Uh, so our journalists would, would go to the team managers and say, we're writing for the book on the race. It's the official history. Now, during the course of the weekend, I'm going to come to you when things happen to your team, and I'm going to ask you, what happened? Now, you really need to understand one thing. You have a choice here, because normally speaking, when you talk to the media, you may or may not tell the truth, the whole truth or nothing but the truth. Now, when you tell me, answer my question, I won't know the difference. I won't know whether you're telling me the truth or whether you're you're telling me a porky. I will accept it, whatever you say, and I will write that down, and that will appear in the book. So you have a choice. You can either tell us the truth or you can lie to us. But whichever it is, it will appear in the book as the official record of what happened. Up to you, you choose. And that, of course, put a lot of team managers in a very uh, unusual and uh, sort of not normal situation because they're not used to having to tell the truth.
0: Did, in the fullness of time, when you look at what you achieved, are you happy? And do the books stand the rigour
1: of someone on their deathbed actually telling the truth? Look, I I believe so. Because, uh, you know, those books have got, you know, 100,000 words in them. I mean, they're, they're very, very detailed. And there is information about all sorts of things from important to trivial. And that's what made them such a good read. You know, people read the book afterwards and went i didn't know that that's that, you know i mean all sorts of s- silly crazy things but of course there's also you know there's also numerous times and numerous in- instances during the course of all those years where we knew things that we couldn't publish because as you as the, the law says uh, truth is no defense you can uh, end up in End up in court very quickly if you say something that you can't defend. It may well be true, but there are certain things you're just simply not allowed to say. You've got to be able to prove it's true. <laughs> exactly, and uh, that uh, that can be an expensive exercise. But uh, all those, all through all those years. No, I think, you know, uh, even though we've stopped publishing those books some years ago, and other people have attempted to restart the series, other publishers without without any success. Unfortunately, I think you know we proved it, we stopped it at the time where it was, it was uh, at the point where to continue would be more of a, a gesture, but not a profit. And so, yeah, if I was a philanthropist and I didn't mind chucking 100 a hundred grand a year away, I could still be doing it. But you know, there are people who uh, can do that. And, uh, but unfortunately, I'm not one of them. So uh, I, I think though that in you know, all those thirty plus years that we did it uh, they still stand the test of time today if you picked up one of those books today and read it or read parts of it it would be interesting and that's the point it's got to be interesting
0: is there one that you particularly are proud of or is there one that you say it doesn't get better than this
1: i think probably the 1984 book the last year of the group c cars because we all knew things were changing we didn't know what they were going to change to uh, as it proved the the fields got bigger and more professional because the cars became uh, less of hot less like hot rods but uh, in that era uh, of well effectively Moffat Brock and Johnson in uh, and, and their various teams um, the, the rule book was, Let's say it was, a, it was a, a guide. It wasn't set in stone. You know, the people, people knew that they could stretch this a little bit, and stretch that a little bit, and nobody would pay. You know, we're all doing something similar. So, I mean, that, that last, that book on 84, um, I think was, even though it was quite early in the sequence, it was uh, the pinnacle of having fun at motor races and everybody knew... It was like 87 at the World Championship. Everybody was cheating. I mean, everybody was cheating. The problem was that the Australian scrutineers didn't like that. If you won't remember, the two the winning two Ford Sierras both got disqualified. And they could have just... Dis- gave Brocky his tenth. They could have. They could have. Exactly. They could have disqualified three quarters of the field. You know, they just choose not to. But uh, that was, you know, again, that was a wonderful start to something that never continued, which was a great shame.
0: Well, we're looking forward to seeing what uh, you can continue with now as you're out here at the Bathurst 12 Hour, taking more
1: photos for, well, Next Media now, isn't it? Yeah, well, Next Media bought our group of companies out 15 years ago, and uh, for some strange reason I'm still there, uh, I might add that I I now uh, I regale in the title of Chairman of the of the uh, the group of companies, and uh, I never bothered to call myself the chairman when I owned the place. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of maybe that's a, a recollection of what a chairman actually means. <laughs> Probably so, exactly. Yes, all you know, all responsibility, but no power. You know, but uh, no, life is still good. You know, I'm in. Uh, I'm now an old man. Well, you know, statistically, and I'm an old man. Uh, I started in this gig in 1960. So uh, I'm, I'm now 80, and uh, you know I, I, but I don't know what an 80 year old man is supposed to do. And so I refer to myself in, the, in a similar fashion to the bumblebee. We don't have bumblebees in this country. they're a European thing, but bumblebees are very big fat little buggers with tiny little wings and Aerodynamicists who work in the aviation industry say that statistically and aerodynamically, the bumblebee cannot fly. It's impossible for a creature of that shape to fly. The problem is the bumblebee doesn't understand that, and it just goes ahead and flies anyway. And I sort of figure that at 80 years of age, I'm a little the same as the bumblebee. I still do it, even though I'm not supposed to. Ray it's always a pleasure to have a
0: chat with you and thanks for your time today talking about the great race and your publishing of it
1: well thank you very much it was a real pleasure
0: thanks very much for joining us here on inside supercars book club we've had a fantastic amount of feedback who have really enjoyed these stories so thank you very much for listening and for letting us know what you thought of it we've got one more though here's a sneak peek of our bonus episode Again, it was a bit of an insight for people. I know Jamie's done one. There's been a number of drivers that have done them for an insight about what our life was like at that time. I'm sure you know the voice, but if not, you'll hear the whole story next week on Inside Supercars. Until then, keep smiling and bye for now. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more. Or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. you love supercars and keeping up to speed sometimes means hitting the limiter. Welcome to the Gates Revlimiter podcast. After each round, we unpack what happened. Join Andrew Clark. Paused the fraction and got it right, and they probably still would have won the race. I mean, and yours truly, Neville Wilkinson. These are the heady days when Ford was spending mega bucks for all the action, all the controversy, and sometimes a little emotion. The Gates Rev Limited Supercars Podcast. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or where you listen to them.